Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Fentanyl kills thousands of people every year in America, but in Europe, only a couple of hundred. We look into the structural and historical reasons why the continent has been spared so far and why its luck may soon run out. And we've got a great story for you if you're a fan of power naps. How about taking several thousand of them a day? Turns out that one species of penguin is nodding off every few seconds. First up, though. On Friday, the week-long truce between Hamas and Israel came to an abrupt end, and over the weekend, violence erupted once more in the Gaza Strip. Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, claimed that Hamas had violated the terms of the truce by failing to release some of the agreed-upon hostages. Hamas, for its part, accused Israel of breaking its commitment to allow fuel trucks into Gaza. Caught in the middle are millions of Palestinians sheltering in the Strip. We will do everything we can to keep Gazan civilians outside of the crossfire between uh, the IDF and the terrorists, and we will do everything to facilitate that that population receives water. Israeli officials say they're working to minimize innocent casualties, but the already dire humanitarian situation in the Strip is getting worse. According to the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza, more than 15,000 people have been killed in the enclave since October 7th. The UN says that 1.8 million people have been internally displaced. That's around 80% of Gaza's entire population. International negotiators are reportedly trying to broker another pause in the fighting. But that, for now, seems unlikely. The war is back in full force after the seven-day truce. Israeli jets have been bombarding hundreds of sites across the whole of Gaza. Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. There are reports coming out from the Israelis and also from people in Gaza suggesting that Hamas has been quite badly hurt by what is now almost two months of fighting. But at the same time, there is also increasing pressure on Israel, including from some of its closest allies over the horrific civilian death toll. And tell us a bit more about the recent offensive since the truce broke down. What have you been hearing? The focus since Friday has mostly been in the northern part of Gaza in two areas in particular, where Israeli troops before the truce had not really gone in force. One of those uh, is Shuja'iyah, which is an area in the northeastern part of Gaza. 
The other is Jabalia refugee camp, which is in the far north. And the thinking within the Israeli military is that most of the Hamas fighters who are still in northern Gaza are in those two areas. And so that has been the focus for ground troops, also for many airstrikes uh, aimed, the Israelis say, at tunnels, weapons, command centers, uh, the sort of military infrastructure that still exists there. And uh, the estimate that's come out from the Israeli army is that around half of Hamas's military units have suffered serious losses. At the same time, we've also heard reports in the past day or two of Israeli tanks moving towards Khan Yunus, which is the first major city in the southern part of Gaza, and shifting the offensive there. We've also heard from uh, the Israeli military spokesmen and other officials saying that uh, this offensive is going to focus on all of Gaza now, not just the north. At, at the beginning of all of this, the idea was that people could head south for safety. Where are they supposed to go now if the campaign has gone south? Right. If you go back to the first week of the war, the Israeli army told the population of northern Gaza, more than one million people, to flee south of Wadi Gaza, which is a riverbed that more or less bisects the Gaza Strip. What's happened, though, is not just the entire civilian population of North Gaza has fled south, but also it seems much of Hamas has done so. The group's leaders uh, are thought to be sheltering in and around Khan Yunus. Uh, also, many of its fighters have relocated from the north to the south. And so in military terms for the Israelis, of course, they now have to shift their focus to the south. The problem, of course, then is how you do that without endangering the lives of the now more than two million people who are crammed into a very, very small area in southern Gaza. So how to do that then? There are no good options, unfortunately. The Israeli army released a map over the weekend that showed Gaza divided into hundreds of numbered sectors, many of them quite small. And the idea is that on a rolling basis, the Israeli army will say it's going into this sector or that sector and residents should leave and go to other sectors that are being designated as safe areas. Uh, a number of problems with that. First is it's not clear how many people know about this map, have access to it in a place where there have been huge issues around internet connectivity, uh, electricity blackouts over the past two months. Even if people have the map, the map is not entirely clear. And you talk to Palestinians in Gaza, and some of them will say, you know, the map so far has urged people to flee Area X and go to Area Y, but there's no safe way to get from one place to another, or sometimes they're being pushed to go to areas where there is actually active fighting. They're not safe zones. Uh, people have also been told to go to an area called El Mawasi, an area on the coast in central Gaza. It's meant to be safe, but people who have been there say there's no infrastructure there. There's nothing to support large numbers of people fleeing the conflict and going to this supposed humanitarian zone. And then add to that the fact that now that the truce has ended, the number of trucks crossing over each day with aid, that number has diminished once again. So lots of people, nowhere safe to go, real issues getting food, water, medicine, basic supplies, just incredibly dire conditions. And as that humanitarian situation only gets worse, how are Israel's allies reacting to all of this? The most important ally, of course, is America. And publicly, America continues to support Israel's stated aim of trying to remove Hamas from power in Gaza. But it has also increasingly in public and much more strongly in private begun to deliver some tougher messages to the Israeli government. It made clear, for example, that Israel should not repeat in the south uh, the sort of heavy ground fighting that we saw in the north. Too many innocent Palestinians have been killed. 
Frankly, the scale of civilian suffering and the images and videos coming from Gaza are devastating. Vice President Kamala Harris said the manner in which Israel defends itself matters. Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, uh, said something similar. He said Israel has a moral responsibility to protect civilians. And he said that major civilian casualties in Gaza could turn a tactical victory into what he called a strategic defeat there. We've also heard from European allies, particularly French President Emmanuel Macron, who is taking a tougher line with Israel as the weeks go by. So concerns, real concerns in America and then in the rest of the West about both the way in which Israel is conducting this war, its tactics, but also the longer term strategic vision of this war. But it hasn't seemed up until now that any Western opprobrium has changed what Israel is doing. Do you think it will at any point? I think there's a point it will, but that has to be a point at which America very clearly calls for a ceasefire in public and tells the Israelis in private that America is not going to continue to provide the sort of diplomatic and perhaps even military support that it has provided so far. Until then, these statements of criticism, I don't think they're making a whole lot of difference on the Israeli government. There is still broad support amongst the Israeli public for an expansive war that is aimed at uh, removing Hamas from power, making sure that it is no longer in a position to carry out the sort of attack that it carried out in Israel on October 7th. The other thing, though, that is making a difference, I think, within Israel is pressure from the families of those hostages who are still being held in Gaza. They were pushing the government to continue this truce, to try to expand the hostage deal. And I think they're going to keep up the pressure on the Netanyahu government as well. So when you talk to Israeli army officers, security officials, even though they say in public that this war is going to continue until Hamas is removed from power, in private, they admit that they have a window of legitimacy to carry out this war, and that window is closing. It sounds as if Israel's leaders, though, can't satisfy all of those goals there in, in terms of getting the hostages out and committing to destroying Hamas completely in Gaza. And that has always been the problem for Israeli strategists since the beginning of this war. There have been two irreconcilable aims, and now add to that the real concerns internationally about what Israel does in the South. The clock is ticking. The Israelis do feel like they have a limited time in which to continue this campaign. But how it's going to end and how to achieve either of those aims of the war, uh, I don't think anyone is quite clear. But I think the longer term question is also one that no one has an answer for. I mean, even if the war ended now, you will still have more than two million Palestinians living in a devastated, depopulated northern Gaza and a devastated southern Gaza. The economy of Gaza is in ruins. People are entirely dependent now on humanitarian aid, and they will be for the foreseeable future, with the remnants of a Hamas regime still intact. That's obviously not a good outcome for anyone, certainly not for Palestinians in Gaza, also not for Israel. Thanks very much for the update, Greg. Thank you. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. 
Earlier this year, I visited a neighborhood of Paris that not many tourists get to go to. Stanley Pignol writes Charlemagne, our column on European affairs. It's on the northern outskirts, and it's a tangle of highways and underpasses. This is really far from what you see on Instagram. In this place, known as the Colline du Crac, or Crack Hill, is essentially the place where the authorities have parked their drug addicts. It is not a pleasant place. It's a mix of tents and shacks and rough sleeping. It's not very sanitary. It's certainly not very safe. There are lots of people there in various stages of distress, of addiction. It's quite grim, but it's also quite small, a few dozen people at most. If you compare that to some American cities, and San Francisco comes to mind, there you'd see large parts of downtown being ravaged by fentanyl and other synthetic opioids. In Europe, we have a small problem, mainly with crack cocaine and others, but lawmakers are worried that that might soon change. And you mentioned fentanyl specifically. I mean, the, the gap then between American outcomes with fentanyl clearly very different from those in Europe? Yeah, so synthetic opioids like fentanyl kill around 70,000 Americans a year. To put it in context, that's more than died in the wars in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan combined. In Europe, the figures might not be precisely comparable, but you're looking at around 200 dead a year from fentanyl. That gap in fentanyl deaths means Europe has less than a tenth as many fatal drug overdoses as the U.S. That's quite remarkable. I mean, it's evidence of good policymaking. But as I said, there's a caveat, which is governments are really worried it's not going to last. Well, why hasn't it already caught on, given how much it has done so in America? So this is where European society being a bit different to American society comes into play. One of the elements that has slowed the spread of fentanyl in Europe is probably universal medical care. That means that those Europeans who have ailments, might be a bad back or a dodgy knee, can get the procedures they need to alleviate the pain. In America, the gaps in the healthcare systems are sometimes filled by painkillers. If you can't get some back operation, you might use pills as an alternative and then you get hooked. America also had a huge overprescription of painkillers. This started in the 1990s. To give you a sense of the scale, by 2015, there were over 200 million prescriptions for opioids in America, which is roughly one for every American adult. European medicine isn't quite so aggressively commercialized, if you will. Some patients may be afraid of taking opioids because they're perceived as too strong or addictive. But that is far from actual fact. Less than 1% In America, pharmaceutical firms, uh, shall we say, did not shy away from advertising their products. And that means that Europe didn't have this feedstock of potential addicts who came from using fentanyl and opioids legally and then kind of graduated to illegal use of opioids once they were hooked. And then America has very well-established drug gangs uh, with bases both in Mexico and the U.S. who leapt on the synthetic opioid opportunity. But despite those structural differences, there is this fear that fentanyl may come for Europeans as well. Why? What's changed? So the authorities have two concerns. The first is heroin. Europe uses a lot of heroin. This may sound like bad news, but in fact, heroin helps keep many drug users from fentanyl, which is a far more destructive drug. 
the problem now is that the European supply of heroin overwhelmingly comes from Afghanistan, from poppies grown in Afghanistan. And the Taliban, who came back into power a couple of years ago, have enforced production cuts of maybe 95% this year. The thinking is that by 2024, the supply of heroin into Europe is going to be much lower. Some existing addicts might just replace heroin with fentanyl. What's much more likely is that what little heroin there is gets cut or gets supplemented with fentanyl, and eventually that displaces heroin and you have a lot of fentanyl addicts. We've seen this before, actually. The last time the Taliban throttled heroin production before 2001, we saw fentanyl take root in Estonia, and it had a rotten fentanyl problem for over a decade, and it's the only place in Europe that's had a really enduring issue with it. And that theory of, of fentanyl uh, displacing heroin is actually being tested right now in Ukraine. Uh, heroin supply lines have been disrupted by the war, as you'd expect. But synthetic drugs remain relatively available, and so European authorities are starting to catch on that actually fentanyl is maybe doing better than it would otherwise be in Ukraine. And you said the authorities had two concerns here. What's the other? Oh, the other is that fentanyl is fabulously lucrative. Unlike cocaine or heroin, it's quite easy to make. You don't need those Afghan poppies. You can just make it in a lab. And it's also very easy to ship. It's so concentrated as a drug. You don't need shipping containers or human mules to get it across borders. Often you can just pop it in the post. One kilogram can generate a million dollars in profits. And Europol, which is the, the EU's law enforcement arm, has warned already that Mexican cartels are working with criminal networks in Europe in a bid to expand the market for synthetic drugs. So constrained heroin supply and a sadly fabulous business opportunity there on the table. Is this takeover of fentanyl kind of inevitable by this point? No, it's certainly worrying. But Europeans have one big advantage. They know the ravages that this can cause. Uh, the opioid epidemic was a surprise in the U.S., certainly at the beginning, but it won't be in Europe. Uh, authorities know that they need to be on this. They're stamping out whatever outbreaks they can find. One thing that Europe does very well, actually, is to monitor wastewater for traces of drugs, including fentanyl. Uh, they're sharing information and their strategies to combat fentanyl. Uh, doctors uh, also know that they need to be careful about prescribing addictive painkillers unnecessarily. And then another thing we now know is how to treat fentanyl addiction. That's better understood, and strategies are being shared at European level to try and manage whatever crisis happens. So the supply of it can go up, the market can be built up around it, but perhaps it just won't have as much damage in Europe in the long run. Yeah. So Europe is certainly putting up a fight. Uh, most experts I spoke to said an uptick in fentanyl use is probably inevitable. But what they hope is that at least Europe can contain it. A lot of what helped Europe resist fentanyl in the first place is still around. I mean, the state can feel overbearing in Europe. Uh, Europe is a place which is full of regulation and high taxes and so on. That doesn't do a lot for economic dynamism, but it does help spare Europeans from the worst outcomes in life. You do have people falling between the cracks, uh, like I saw in Paris. But maybe there's still a quiet confidence that Europe is fundamentally better equipped to fight this crisis than America. Stanley, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Sleep is a bit of an evolutionary mystery. If you're dozing, you can't look for food, defend territory, flee from danger, or find a mate. Yet every animal does it, and if they don't, after a while they actually die. 
not every creature does it in the same way. Some can switch off just one half of their brain at a time, which seems handy, or sleep in shorter bursts. And it now seems the chin-strap penguin has absolutely perfected the tactic of micronapping. Scientists were looking at the sleep patterns of penguins on King George Island off Antarctica. Sophie Roberts writes about science for The Economist. This was a collaborative project between Paul-Antoine Liberal from the Centre of Research in Neuroscience in Lyon in France and Won Young Lee from the South Korean Polar Research Institute. The results were published in a paper in the journal Science and showed that penguins sleep about 10,000 times a day and about four seconds each time, hundreds of times an hour. 10,000 times a day. I mean, how did they work that out? So they monitored 14 penguins and they attached a logger on the head, fixed movement sensors and GPS trackers to their bodies. And they then released them back into the colony and tracked them for 11 days. So it turns out, like ducks and dolphins, that chin-strap penguins sleep with half of their brain and with one eye open. They're extremely versatile. They can sleep in the middle of the ocean. They can sleep on land, lying down and standing up. But for four seconds at a time, which does not seem like the best way to get a restful sleep. I mean, is this sort of unheard of in the animal kingdom? Well, we know that other penguins do this as well, and even humans can be prone to micronaps. Just ask anybody who's jet-lagged or any parents with newborn babies. But chin straps, they've gone all in. When added together, they're actually getting about 11.5 to 12 hours sleep a day. Okay, so that's blatantly more than I'm getting, but why? Why go about it in this way? The researchers had two explanations for this. So the first one was external threats, so the threat of predation. Penguins often incubate their eggs alone while their partners are away finding food for days at a time. And the colonies are menaced by predatory birds like skewers that will snatch unattended eggs. And basically, broken sleep may be the evolutionary way of catching some shut-eye during this while still being able to react to danger. If this is right, then birds near the centre of the herd should be safer, sleep longer and deeper as their eggs are less vulnerable. But birds on the edge actually enjoy longer, deeper naps. So another explanation is the sleep pattern is actually disturbed by the penguins. A colony can be very noisy and busy. The researchers actually found that it's busy 24 hours round the clock. And penguins have been known to steal nesting material from their neighbours, for instance. So birds in the crime-ridden centre may just find it harder to get shut-eye than those in the quieter suburbs. But I suppose both of those things could be true, right? It could be a matter of both external threats and neighbourly ones. Yes, so further research is needed. And when I spoke with the researchers, they both said that sleep is incredibly complex and it's quite unusual to have a study like this in the wild. Most of what we know about sleep is actually based on lab research. So definitely there's huge scope for further exploration. And it's important to note that Drs Lee and Liberal, they couldn't actually measure how restorative the penguins' micronaps were. Looking at the brain recordings and the neuronal activity suggested that the sleep was in fact restorative. And the fact that they are able to incubate their young under such conditions suggests that they are getting something from their constant nodding off. So humans nurturing their own newborns should take heart. Sophie, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. I hope you caught the latest free episode of The Weekend Intelligence. Our editor-in-chief and our Russia editor returned to Kyiv to see how Ukraine's long war is reshaping its people. The Weekend Intelligence is our new, well, new-ish home for storytelling and just one of the many treats we give subscribers. This latest free episode is just a little taster. If you're not already a subscriber, head to the show notes, sign up, and get ready for a deep Saturday listen. For now, though, see you back here tomorrow. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.